Uh, my name is Jeff, if we haven't met, and I'm excited. You're here. If you're here, we're starting a new series. I've been, I've been kind of wanting to do this series for a while, but it's a newer um, biblical theme for me, and so I've kind of been putting it off, but we're going to do it today. Uh, we're going to start it today. We'll really get into the meat of it next week, but our, our new series is called Location, Location, Location. I think we have a slide. If There it is. Location, Location, Location. That'll give you a little bit of a background. I'll, and today I'm going to set it up, and we're going to talk about the bookends, and then the rest of our series will be in the middle there with Babylon. But I, location, 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 it's a phrase that comes up when you're really buying a house, right? The, the idea is that you could have the exact same house, but if it's in different places, the value will adjust, right? Location, location, location. And so I was thinking through, you know, where you, where you live matters, but also what's inside the house matters. I was thinking through when we were buying our, we've, we've bought two homes now. Kami and I rented for about the first 10 years of our marriage. And the last church we worked at um, is when we bought our first home. It was about an hour east of here. And I, if you've been around Cross, you've heard me say that our previous church was in a very, very, very wealthy area. And so... Um, the, the suburbs are more population dense, so they're smaller, but we could not live in the suburb where the church was. And so we were a several suburbs over and Kami had worked hard. She really did do a lot of the work trying to identify where could we, what neighborhood could we actually buy a house in around here? Like where? And so she identified, I think this neighborhood, we could actually maybe afford a house. We're going to need to do a fixer upper, but let's do this. And so that is the neighborhood we eventually bought a house in. But I remember the first home we went to see in that neighborhood. It was, a, it was a, I mean, it had a good bones to it, right? But it definitely needed some work. But I remember walking down in the basement. I didn't tell Kami. See if you remember this, Kami. Walking down in the basement, there was this picture painting of a clown. You remember that? If you don't remember it, I remember it. I'm still haunted by it. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Like, I'm not anti-clown at all. Kami will make fun of me because my elementary school gym teacher taught us how to juggle. So I practiced. I like, just like fun to juggle, I think. Kami thinks it's nerdy. I think it's fun to juggle. And I remember going to a book fair in elementary school, and I also got a book on how to make balloon animals. So I can make balloon animals and juggle. Kami always says, if pastoring doesn't work out, you could be a clown at birthday parties. I am not anti-clown, but this was a creepy clown painting. And I remember thinking, if we somehow bought this house, I think I will be haunted by that face every time I come down in the basement. I don't know if we should buy this place. We didn't. I'm glad. And when we, when we came out here to DeKalb County and we were looking at homes all around the area, I remember one distinctly. Again, I'm not anti-clown. I'm not anti-pet. Uh, Jay and I were out with my sister and my brother-in-law and my niece a few months ago. They have two cats and a dog in their house. No problem with it. I am not anti-pet. I'm not saying anything about pets. But some people go above and beyond. And the owner of this house had, I don't even know how many cats, but you had to have a lot of cats for your house to smell that way. I'm just saying and I remember walking in, the owner knew that there was an unusual odor, aroma of cat, and so they had baked chocolate chip cookies. 
to try to mask the smell of the cats, which isn't a bad idea, except, again, I'm telling you, this was beyond. (laughs) It couldn't mask the odor, and so it just kind of mixed into an odor I wish I had never inhaled. (laughs) So my point is, location matters, but also what's inside where you're living matters as well. And in the series, what we're going to primarily talk about, which again, really jumping into next week, is Babylon. I want you to understand about this theme that we, in one way, we could say starts in Genesis 3, picks up steam. We'll talk about the origin of Babylon next week. It begins early in Genesis, and Revelation gives a whole chapter to the fall of Babylon. It's a major theme. One you may not be, it's one I've become more and more aware of in recent years, but I want you to help, I want to help you see, because I think it's important for all kinds of reasons, what Babylon is really like on the inside. I mean, in some ways you already know, because we all live in modern day Babylon, but you might not really be paying attention. <laughs> and part of what we're going to do in this series is contrast the kingdom of God, what Jesus is bringing, the way he's rearranging the world with Babylon. I'll say some things here just so you can hold on to these things, but again, we will just, we will slowly expand and work this out as we go in our series. But, but for now, let me just say that Babylon traffics in death. We're going to talk about a garden and God as our gardener today, how he nourishes life. Babylon traffics in death. It, it numbs you to what is real. Or let me say it this way this morning, Babylon wants to keep you on the surface. It doesn't want you to have roots deep down in the good soil. (laughs) Babylon treats you like you're a weed. Babylon wants you to think you're a weed. That's what Babylon wants. So this morning we're going to talk about the bookends, we're going to talk about the garden where the biblical story begins, and then the garden city where the biblical story ends, and then, I'm a lot of scripture this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus, because <laughs> he's the tree of life, he is the vine, and we are the branches, we talk about Jesus every Sunday, so that we can be amazed by him. And in awe of him. He's amazing. So if you want to start, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 just to begin. Not a lot of time in any of these passages. I'm trying to give you the big overview for our series so that we have some, some things to hold on to as we journey through. In Genesis 2 verse 4, this is the account of the creation of the heavens of the earth. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth. And there were no people to cultivate the soil. Even in that verse right there, it's kind of flowing out of Genesis 1. We are getting this picture. It's fundamental. It's important that you and I were created in the image of God to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. That's what we would have read if we read Genesis chapter 1. We are to partner with God. We are to We are to work with him in the work that he's doing to bring about life in order and beauty in this world. Verse 6, instead springs came up from the ground. There's no rain, so springs come up from the ground. And even hold on to that phrase when we get into Revelation in a few minutes. Springs came up from the ground and watered all the land. 
And the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. And part of the imagery, and I think even the strategy of what the biblical author is doing here, is to present to us this, this, this wonderful place, this blessed place that is coming forth because God is the source of life. I mean, the water is real, but it's also in many ways a metaphor for how God is the source of what brings life into this world. And then we receive that life. We are filled with the breath of life, and we partner with the one who is the source of life. Verse 8, then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. Eden means delight. It's a place of delight. It's, it's, it's what God desires for his creation. And he places the man there, and we aren't going to read all the way through Genesis 2, but, but he's also going to bring Eve about. So the man and the woman, just two people, right? Because it's just the beginning. It's not the end. It's the beginning of the story. Life is coming forth, and two people are going to live in this garden. Verse 9, and it's, it's a beautiful, wonderful, flourishing place. Life is everywhere. The Lord made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground. Beautiful trees producing delicious fruit. That's what gardeners do, right? And in the middle of the garden, we talked a lot about this really in our last two series, I would say. God placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then I'm not going to read, you can kind of skim through verses 10 to 14 if you want, but, but you just continue get, to get this picture of what then is happening. There's going to be beautiful stones mentioned, which will be important for John as he is sharing his vision in Revelation, which we'll read in a few minutes. And, the, and there's this river, these streams are coming out of Eden, and then this river is breaking forth into four branches, and it's just going out throughout the world. And it is a picture of God's life going, he's, he's bringing life to all of the world. And even as you think about human beings partnering with God to cultivate the soil, it's almost, I was even trying to imagine and dream, it's like, it's like he's giving the humans, Adam and Eve, okay, as you're going to go forth and care for all of the earth as I've shown you how I care for the earth in Eden, this garden of delight, as you're going to make the whole creation look like Eden, here are some rivers, here are some streams that you can follow. Follow my life as it goes forth and just care for all of creation as you've seen me do it. It's a beautiful picture of God, the good creator, providing life and sustenance, filling the world with beautiful, good things <laughs> and wanting to see human beings flourish. Again, part of what I want you to see, location, 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 is that inside this first location is life, abundant life, and delight, joy. It's just, it's a beautiful place. And I'll say it this way this morning, Adam and Eve made a choice to move out of Eden. And when they chose to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God said, don't do that. When they chose to do that, they chose to move out of Eden and they were exiled from the source of life because of what they had done. And their departure from Eden is, again, this is next week, the origin story, but it's, it's what begins the chain of events that is going to lead to Babylon being founded. <laughs> And becoming really the primary location that it seems broken, sinful human beings choose when they've been exiled from Eden. 
So that's Eden. That's the beginning of the story. Now let's turn to the New Jerusalem, the end of the story. We'll read a little bit more here, try to give you a feel for the New Jerusalem. What does John have to say in Revelation chapter 21? He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. He's kind of falling over himself with metaphors here at the beginning as he's trying to find the words to describe what he's seeing in this revelation. A new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. That's just a metaphoral, metaphoric, pictorial way of saying there's no more evil. I mean, they'll even say that as we continue. There's just no more chaos. Now, everything is as God designed. His delight is fully manifested. It is ordered. It is, what do we say? The kingdom of God is Jesus rearranging things. Well, now it's all been rearranged. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home. We want a home. Where's our home? God's home is now among his people. And he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. That's the greatest home you and I could ever have. And if you're wondering, well, what's the inside of the new Jerusalem like? How would you describe what the new, how do I know what to expect? What will it feel like? What will it be like? Well, how about verse four? You tell me if you want to live here. It says he will wipe away every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death, praise God, no more sorrow, no more crying, and no more pain. That's what it's like inside the new Jerusalem. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And he said, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he said, it's finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We talked about that last week. And then listen to this. Again, this is, this is Eden language. That's why as you read the Bible and then you go back and reread previous passages, it all comes together like this beautiful mosaic. In Genesis, there's no life. And then waters spring forth from the earth. And then, and then it makes possible for life on earth. Well, here in Revelation 21, verse 6, To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. God is the source of life. And then again, as we're in a way contrasting New Jerusalem and Eden with what we'll be talking about in the upcoming weeks in Babylon, verse 7, all who are victorious will, listen to this word, inherit all these blessings. And I will be their God and they will be my children. This is something we talk about relatively frequently, I think, here at Crossview. But I want to point out that in, in Eden... In the New Jerusalem, everything we receive is a gift. I want you to notice that language of inherit is very different than the language of Babylon, which is I'm going to seize and grasp what is mine so I get it before you do and you can't take it from me. (laughs) That's what Babylon's like. We say this frequently. Babylon says life is a game to be won, so get yours first and get it before anyone else does. But in the New Jerusalem, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that because it's guaranteed. It's your inheritance. 
Life is a gift to be lived, and it flows forth abundantly from the God who is the source of all life. That's the new Jerusalem. Let's keep going. We're going to get a bigger picture here. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me this holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, an alternative to Babylon. My heart is longing for another place to live, and I'm seeing it. It's shining with the glory of God, sparkles like a precious stone. And here we get this phrase that you'll see as I keep reading. It just, it echoes through here. It kept catching my, my attention this week. Like Jasper, as clear as crystal. It makes it hard. You're like picturing as you read through this, this crystal city that's clear. We'll talk about why that's important. Verse 12, the city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And this is just to connect us. I mean, again, this is one story that begins in Genesis and runs all the way through where the people of Israel and ultimately Jesus as the new Israel center, center stage. John's connecting the story together. So you've got 12, 12 sons of Jacob, 12 disciples, 12 names of tribes of Israel written on the gates. Three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and of them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Verse 15, the angel who talked to me held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. And when he measured it, this is the important piece, he found it was a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. We'll come back to those details. And he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick according to the human standard used by the angel. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip verses 18 to 20. Well, I'll read the first. The, the wall was made as, uh, of jasper and the city was pure gold as clear as glass. Here you go again. It's just like, it's pure gold, but it's like translucent. It's clear. It's, it's new creation kind of stuff. But I was like, I don't know how to say all these stones, so you can read it for yourself. I feel more confident saying, saying names in cities in the Old Testament than these stones. I was like, I, I can do onyx, but I don't know about some of these other ones. So verse 21, the 12 gates were made of pearls, each gate from a single pearl, and the main street was pure gold. Again, as clear as glass. And he's bringing some of these things together. I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. We'll talk about how that's clear. And the city has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the Lamb is its light. You and I live in the dawn of a new day under the light of the resurrected Christ. And verse 24, this is one of those things that caught my attention as I was kind of holding Eden, this garden next to New Jerusalem, this garden city, some things have changed, obviously. Where is this story going? How is it unfolding? And I tried to, to make it clear. In, in, in Eden, you have two people. That's it. It's just the beginning of the story. But now, as we're at the end of the story, now we don't have two people. Verse 24, the nations now will walk in its light. That was, God's, that was God's thought from the beginning, that all the nations, people of different tribes and colors, ethnicities, languages, all coming together to be the family of God, to live together in the new Jerusalem. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory because Jesus is the king of kings and Lord of lords. 
Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there and there's nothing to fear. What we've prayed and sung about in the Psalms has finally been ultimately realized that God is our refuge and our fortress. I mean, imagine nothing. You wake up in the morning, nothing to be afraid. We live in modern day Babylon. If you turn on any media source, the first thing you're told is what to be afraid of today. That's what modern-day Babylon, modern Babylon wants to... We'll talk more about this. Right? But you're told what to be afraid of, what you should be anxious about today. In the New Jerusalem, gates are open, nothing to be afraid of. Nothing to be afraid of. No more sorrow, no more pain. It's beautiful. Verse 26, And all the nations will bring their glory and honor, honor into the city to honor Jesus. Verse 27, nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. It's the New Jerusalem. A few more things I'd like to say about the New Jerusalem. This idea of it being clear as crystal, I remember studying this a few years ago, trying to imagine it and wondering why that detail just kept coming forward again and again as I read about the city. And one of the, one of the people I was reading uh, had this to say, I think that the New Jerusalem is crystal clear because we're being told we have nothing to hide and God has nothing to hide In other words, as you walk through the city, you don't have to look at a wall and think, I wonder what's going on behind that wall, if it's something that could hurt me, impact me in a negative way. You don't have to worry about it. The city is transparent. It's translucent. You can be completely vulnerable. You have nothing to be afraid of, nothing to hide. There's no, in other words, there is no batch of chocolate chip cookies trying to cover the nasty aroma of cats in the New Jerusalem. I believe that, I do, and I'm thankful for it. Again, we're getting an alternative to Babylon. Something, it's, it's metaphorical, it's, it's symbols, but, it, but it's, it should be tapping into our deepest desires. Yes, I want that to be my home. One author says this, John's goal, as he described the New Jerusalem, wasn't to satisfy our curiosity about the new world, but to instill confidence that the creation would be reborn just as Jesus was resurrected from the dead. This is the hope of the story of the Bible. God's domain and our domain will one day completely unite and all things will be made new. Death will be replaced with life. The whole earth will be a recreation of the garden and the glory of the temple will cover it. Every nation will be blessed through the power of the resurrected Jesus and God's own personal presence will permeate every square inch of the new creation. That's the other thing I forgot to say. This language of the square, what's going on? Why is the new Jerusalem a square? Well, if you're reading through the biblical story, we've talked about this before, but if you're reading through the biblical story, there is one location that's a, that's a square and it's, you can't miss it as you're reading through the story. It's the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And in the temple, it's the the most sacred place among the Israelites. So what John is seeing in the New Jerusalem is, well, now the Holy of Holies covers, it covers, I mean, the the picture is all of creation. If I'm understanding things correctly, the 1,400 miles is a rough estimate of what 
what the Roman Empire would have been like during the days of John and Revelation. And so the picture he's receiving is God's presence will cover the whole earth. That's why there's no temple. Because instead of God's presence dwelling uniquely in one place in the temple, or we've talked about this before, God's presence dwelled uniquely in one person, the fullness of God in the person of Jesus. But that's why we celebrate his crucifixion, his resurrection. And now we look forward and the church calendar, we will look forward to those 40 days after Easter, 50 days after Easter, the ascension of Jesus. Because now that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, he fills all things everywhere with himself. It's a a precursor for what will be realized when he returns and the new Jerusalem descends and heaven and earth are one and we live into the ideal that we partner with God to care for his good creation. So that's the beginning and the end. Again, I'm just trying to set things up for this series. It's talking about Babylon. Might not be fun every week, but we're going to do it. It'll be important. But I did want to say a little bit about today. What does that mean for us today? And because it's the first Sunday after Easter, I originally kind of thought I would go through John 20, talk about Jesus and the way gardens even show up in his story, right? You know, the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays passionately to the Father. And then Jesus is buried in a garden. So that he's resurrected and he's in a garden and he's mistaken by Mary in John 20 on that first Easter morning as the gardener. (laughs) I love to think about God as a gardener. But I actually ended up a few chapters before that in John chapter 15. We'll kind of hone in on this text here, John 15. Let me just read. We'll talk a little bit about this because I think this will give us a picture living in the midst of modern-day Babylon, longing for the kingdom to fully manifest itself, what are we to do in the in-between? We're on this journey to the new Jerusalem. We're waiting for God to move in a way that only He can. What are we to do? Can we taste any of God's delight? Can we experience His abundant life, the life that flows forth from Him? How do we make our homes If we are citizens of heaven, how do we make our home so we're not citizens of Babylon anymore? Where do we go and what do we do? Well, let's read John 15, verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true grapevine. And here Jesus is quite content to say, and my father is the gardener. God is a gardener. And he's cultivating something. He plants the garden in Eden and then he wants to partner with us as we're made in his image to to lead the way to this new Jerusalem where it's a garden city. God remains the gardener that we participate with. Verses two and three, he cuts off every branch, he cuts off every branch, Jesus is saying, of mine that doesn't produce fruit. This is a gardener who values the fruit of his crop, of his harvest. He prunes the branches that do bear fruit so they will produce even more. You have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Come back to those verses. I'm just going to read through the text. Verse 4, Jesus says, Remain in me and I will remain in you. Your translation may say, Abide in me and I will abide in you. Or maybe even, I think, 
The best way to understand this invitation from Jesus this morning is Jesus is saying to you and I, make your home in me. Look, I know, I know you've been exiled to Babylon, but I have returned. (laughs) I'm the king you've been longing for. Make your home in me. Make your home in me. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine... And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Here, Jesus is going to go, I am the vine and you are the branches. You could even read this. I really think you could read this. Jesus is saying, I am the tree of life. I am the tree of life. I am the source of life. I am the well from whom all the springs burst forth. Are you thirsty for life? Come to me. That's what Jesus is saying. I'm the vine and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, abide in me, make their home in me, and I in them will produce much fruit. That's a promise from Jesus. But this is also a promise. This is very real. This is why we're so crazy about Jesus. (laughs) Jesus says, for apart from me, you can do nothing. This was always meant we need to be in contact with the source of all life. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch, and it withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. But, but if you remain in me, I mean, again, if you, if you live, if you stay in Babylon, you're going to wither. You're going to be a weed that just dies, burned up. But Jesus says, if you, if you make your home in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. And when you produce much fruit, You are my true disciples, and this brings great joy to the Father. In verse 9, he's going to shift his attention to love. How do you, in a sense, how do you remain? How do you abide? How do you make your home in Jesus? Well, you have to receive his love. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me, so remain in my love. Abide in my love. Make your home in my love. And when you, this should sound like Deuteronomy, a series we just finished. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Here's the heart of God, the one who planted a garden and named it delight. (laughs) I have told you these things so that you will be filled with joy. So that you know that I'm pleased with you. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. What does the love of Jesus looks like? This. This is what it looks like. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friend. Even reading that this week, I had the most, one of the most amazing conversations with somebody who's not really a Jesus follower right now. But we were talking about love and they were articulating that they are starting to learn, maybe for the first time in life, what self-giving love actually is. And I just listened with excitement because that's a great step on the journey when your heart is longing for self-giving love. And I just kept thinking, Jesus, thank you for showing us what love really is. Self-giving love. You are the source of it. You are the model of it. You are the giver of it. And you don't hold back. You just pour it out and pour it out and pour it out. Verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. No, now you are my friends. You're at peace. We're we're together. We enjoy being, I've told you everything the Father told me. I haven't held back. 
And Jesus wants you to know, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that, the Father's will, so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my name. And remember, this is my command, love each other. As you learn to love each other, you will learn how to enter into my love. You will follow in my footsteps on the narrow road of love. And then these last two verses, because again, this is what catapults us into the following weeks. Jesus says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. I actually feel fine, and I hope this will be clear as we go through the series. I feel fine reading this if, if, if Babylon hates you. If those who live in Babylon hate you, remember that they hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own. Those in Babylon would love you as one of their own if you belonged there. If that was your home. But you are no longer part of that world. That is no longer your home. You've been saved. You've been redeemed. You're being sanctified. I chose you to come out of Babylon and make your home in me. That's the great invitation of Jesus. Let's lean a little bit farther into some of the things he says here in John 15. The first one you pick up in verse 2, basically, if you are going to make your home, I just, we can't say this too often, because again, this is countercultural. This is contrary to what modern day Babylon might want us to think, as Babylon tries to keep us on the surface, not be very deep, not very, very shallow, not be very risky in love. Love is risky, and Babylon wants us to make cautious, comfortable decisions. But Jesus says, you know what? If you follow me, you know you're going to end up in New Jerusalem for eternity where there's no pain, sorrow, none of that. But right now, until there's New Jerusalem, if you follow me, if you're on this road to being a fruitful disciple, then you will be pruned. I did a little reading. I'm not an expert. I'm better at juggling and balloon animals than I am at gardening. I'll just tell you that. But I did a little reading on horticulture, and it was kind of fun to read how, uh, how a vineyard is cared for. You know, you'll find vines carefully lifted up off the ground and placed on wire trellises that give them structure and keep them out of the dirt and in the sunlight. And one of the pictures I think that is unfolding in John 15 is, is sometimes you and I, we fall off that wire trellis and we end up in the dirt and in the mud and if, and if we're left there, we're just going to die. No fruit. But the father, the gardener, comes along with his green thumb. And he picks us off ever so gently. I mean, we're a vine. We're tender. And these gentle hands that aren't afraid to get dirty. I mean, if you know anything about Jesus, he's all powerful and he's so gentle. And he's not afraid to get dirty. He's not afraid to get into your dirt. And he gets you out of the mud and he cleans you off and he sets you back on the wire so that you can receive the sunlight that gives you what you need. <laughs> but he also prunes. And as I was reading, a gardener is never as close to the branch as when he or she is pruning it. Because each branch is unique, so it, it needs to be analyzed. The, the best way to prune it most effectively 
And, and, and the gardener begins pruning early on because every plant needs to be pruned early on or, or it won't grow right. Its, it's, its roots will get messed up. Its branches will get tangled. But the, the pruning is a cutting back, a cutting back. Actually, we brought, the, uh, we brought the lilies in. They were out in the lobby so they could get sun and some of the flowers were doing better than others and the ones up here look really nice and white but there were some that were getting brown. <laughs> And Lenny Mack was like, hey, can I fix them up? And I was like, yeah, go ahead and prune. So Lenny just went and he grabbed all the flower buds that were dying and just pulled them off. I mean, it's, that's what pruning is. is you're, you're, even, you're taking off even the flower. But somehow you need to cut back even something beautiful because it's, it's, it's holding back the fullness of life and harvest and fruit that you could produce. I was reading that a typical young branch will produce 10 to 12 buds that can become clusters of grapes. But what a gardener will do in a vineyard is cut that back so that you actually only have two or three buds. But the logic of it is that those two or three buds will be, will be healthier and more flourishing, just luscious clusters. Luscious clusters of abundant fruit rather than 10 or 12 mediocre clusters. But there's a cutting back. Pruning is the painful experience of loss. No one likes to be cut back, but the gracious intention of the good gardener is always the same, to prepare you to flourish. Jesus says, every branch of mine that bears fruit is pruned, and that, and that way it may bear more fruit. You know, the last two weeks, I think since I got back from spring break, for whatever reason, I've been doing a little bit more thinking deeply about who I am as a, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a leader, as a shepherd. And I was just looking back at my own life and even what, what do I think has been fruitful recently? <laughs> and I think even as I look at my life right now and try to take stock of where I am, I, I think I could say that that the areas where I think I see the Holy Spirit bringing forth the most fruit are areas where I've been pruned in the past. <laughs> Even as I think about trying to be a citizen of heaven rather than a citizen of modern-day Babylon, I've, I've thought about as a pastor how much pruning has happened, how much early on in my pastoring I bought into what I would say is just the success mantra or ideology of Babylon and what that would mean, and what that would look like as a pastor, maybe just bigger and better, and then bigger and better and bigger and better, <laughs> and applause, 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 right? But, I, but I've been pruned. I've been pruned, and I think I'm seeing a lot of things differently. That's why if you're paying attention to the sermons that I preach, I feel like my roots are going deeper and deeper into the soil, the good soil, the good soil that is Jesus. And I'm more excited about forgiveness and mercy and peace and love and integrity and faithfulness and gentleness. I mean, just the, the fruit of the Spirit, patience. I'm not naturally a patient person, but I'm starting to see even the beauty of patience. I've had to be pruned. I've had to see things differently, look for fruit in different places. It's been painful, painful sometimes, but I thank the gardener for it. I want to say to you, take heart if you're in the garden. The gardener is there. 
If you feel like you're in a season where you're being pruned, well, pay attention. It may hurt right now, but it's for your flourishing. (laughs) And maybe rather than fighting what the gardener is trying to do, work with him so that you can blossom. And so that you, you can produce luscious clusters of grapes that are a blessing to those around you. That's a picture of some of what we're getting here in John 15. And I'll come back to that in a second. I actually, I wanted to take a moment here even to do a little bit of leading and shepherding and pastoring. You know, we've been, you know, we've been looking for a worship pastor for about a year and a half now. It's been a long journey. I want to tell you that the the team we have together has been phenomenal. Um, You should thank them. I think they've done a great job. But one of the things that's become apparent to me during the year and a half and the conversations that we've been having is that we don't all agree on everything. I don't know if you realize that, but oftentimes in the church, not everyone agrees about what worship can be or should be. And sometimes I think as a leader, I don't do enough leading to remind us where we're going together, to kind of, if you will, cast a vision about What I think God is doing in the midst of us as he's cultivating this garden, this garden city we could call Crossview. So I thought I'd take a moment and and share some things that I've heard from our church family that I think think we can all get behind. Things that I'm looking for, things that are most important to me. And the first thing, and the reason I'm doing it this week is I didn't plan on doing this, but as I was just reading through these texts and sitting with some of the things that were popping out to me of what Jesus is doing as he's bearing fruit, some of the things just kept coming to mind as I've also been praying pretty strongly over the worship ministry and who God would bring to Crossview. The first thing I wrote down this week is that I think we want someone who is (laughs) Jesus-centric, Our elders, if you've been paying attention to the annual ministry plan, we've been meeting and talking about small groups. Are they doing what we want? Are we happy with where they're at? Or do we need to be giving more attention to small groups? What does discipleship and spiritual formation look like at Crossview? And so we've been having some conversations about where we're strong and where we need to grow as a church and what's distinctive about us. And one of our, one of our elders said this, which I, I celebrated. They said, you know, one of the things that I actually think is distinctive about our church community right now is we are laser focused on Jesus. And he said, I, I'm not saying that other church, churches aren't worshiping Jesus. I'm not saying we're the only church. I'm not saying that at all. But there's something unique happening at Crossview right now where we are just laser focused. Every week we are consistently excited about Jesus, talking about Jesus. We leave our gatherings on Sunday mornings or even small group during the week or or Saturday morning men's group or, or Sunday school. We leave talking about the name of Jesus again and again and again. We're laser focused on Jesus. I think we want someone who's going to fit that culture. Keep our eyes on the King of Kings. I also read through these passages and just see an abundance of fruit. I think, I mean, some of you have been here way longer than I have, but if I understand things correctly, Crossview has a long history of taking discipleship clearly seriously. This, This language that I use of come as you are, but don't stay where you are. 
Don't be content to stay where you are. Keep growing. I think we want a worship space that is meaningful and engaging. Someone who's going to cultivate and nurture a garden, a life-giving space. What does Jesus say? That that brings about joy. (laughs) And then finally, you know, one of the things I've heard again and again from people, and I'm on board with this, we don't want worship to be a performance. You know, this week as I was reading through the description of the new Jerusalem and this crystal clear city that's transparent and vulnerable, I thought, yes, that's a manifestation of the kingdom of God. If our, if our space, when we worship together, is authentic and it's transparent and it's vulnerable and it's heartfelt and it's inviting. And in fact, and I've said this to a few people, in my role as a senior pastor, if you were to ask me right now, where is God moving the most at our church? I would tell you, it's in spaces of vulnerability where I see the most radical life change, where I see roots that were, that were stuck on the surface and they're breaking into the deep soil and now luscious grapes are, are just sprouting out in someone's life. It's beginning in spaces of vulnerability. I want to continue to cultivate that here at Crossview. Ultimately, I want Crossview to be a garden city, an alternative to Babylon, where we're alive and free and growing individually, but also collectively together. Because the Garden of Eden begins with two people, but the New Jerusalem is all the nations together, somehow finding a way to live together in harmony. It's a beautiful picture. So God is before us, holding forth the possibility of what we can become, and we're told that God is a gardener, a gardener cultivating resurrection life and all who will come to him. So come to him. Come to Jesus. A garden is a place to cultivate and grow living things. Gardeners handle living things with living hands. I told you Jesus has strong but gentle living hands and he's not afraid to get his hands dirty. Some of you are here this morning. You you don't know, Jeff. How dirty my life is. I don't need to know. Jesus already knows and he doesn't care. Let him reach those gentle hands into that filth. Let him pull you out of the mud so that you can rest on the trellis and receive the sunlight, the true sunlight. Jesus is now the gardener of resurrection, cultivating new life in all who believe. Believe in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the risen gardener and he calls you and I to join him in turning the garbage dumps that we will talk about that are in Babylon into gardens. Folks, our gardener has returned and he has not abandoned the garden. We were banished from the garden, but the gardener is back. He says, remain in me, abide in me. We can make our home in Jesus. The first Adam was a gardener who failed in his task and the world became a wasteland of war and sin. And as we'll talk about next week, it led to the founding of Babylon. But the second Adam will succeed in his task. Christ will restore the ruined garden into a garden city. Jesus wants to bring you life. He has a good, loving heart and he has a green thumb. Let him do it. Amen. I'm going to invite you to pray with me. It's a prayer that's really shaped by John 15, if you're paying attention. 
So bow your heads and let's talk to Jesus. Jesus Christ, you are the creator of all things. So you are the one who has brought forth life out of nothing. And the destiny of all things is bound up with you. And because all things were made for you, we know that you will ensure that all things reach this goal. That we started in the garden, but we ended up outside of the garden in Babylon. But we know your kingdom is breaking in and new Jerusalem will truly manifest itself. So Lord, please help us to appreciate your being the real root of the matter the tree of life. Help us to bear fruit and to bear the cutting back that this will often mean. Help us to appreciate your word that cleansed us and that keeps cleansing us. Help us to accept your invitation to make our home with you. Help us to stick with you. Help us to take to heart the warnings you give us about the dangers of not sticking with you. Help us to let your words make such a home in us that we can ask thoughtful whatevers in prayer. And Jesus, help us to bear fruit that lasts and so to bring glory to the Father. Jesus, it's in your name that we pray. Amen.